What a beautiful ballad. Um, yeah, it just reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me under the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil because his rod, his staff is with us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our heads with oil. Our cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow us all the days of our life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So it doesn't matter if it's spiritual need, a directional need, an emotional need, an eternal need. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. Do we have any lovers of Jesus in here today? Amen. All right, let's take our Bible, and uh, I don't know where I'm going to turn you to first because I says selected passages. I don't know which ones I selected, but they're on your outline. Uh, I will guide you to some passages of Scripture. This is the very last message in this series on why I am not a Christian. This is the seventh objection to Christianity, and all of these seven objections that we have dealt with, really, uh, they're really doubts that people have, and they're really not sure how to handle them. I've discovered even among God's people, we read some things in the Word of God, and we wonder, we scratch our head, we wonder, what in the world does this mean? What does this look like? And it begins to create some doubts, and maybe some of you, you're currently doubting some aspect of your faith because of something you read in the Bible. Maybe you've had doubts in the past. Maybe you have never had doubts, and that's because you've never read the Word of God, so therefore you don't have any doubts, right? So if you read the Bible long enough, you're going to come across some things that say, hmm, I'm just not sure about that. I'm really not sure what God's trying to convey there. Uh, I, this really puts God in a bad light, right? And I don't know how to explain that to my friends. And so it is okay to have doubts, okay? It's okay to have doubts. Because what I've discovered, when you doubt something, it causes you to dive deeper into the Word of God and then God takes you deeper into his heart. And God begins to unveil some things to you that will help you understand him more fully so that we begin to align ourselves with him. Right? He says, the reason why your life is not aligned with me is because my thoughts are not your thoughts. Therefore, your ways are not my ways. So when we bring ourselves in alignment with God's thoughts, we begin to bring ourselves in alignment to the ways of God. You know, Thomas was the most famous doubter in the Bible. You remember one of Jesus' disciples, and uh, Jesus has resurrected as he said he would, and Thomas wouldn't believe it. He had not seen the visible resurrected Jesus yet, and the disciples were all giddy about it, those who had seen Jesus. And remember what Thomas said, unless I see his hands and the mark of those nails, unless I can put my finger in the mark of those nails, unless I can like drive my hand up his side where that sword pierced him, I will not believe. And then all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> He's in a room with the other disciples, and Jesus like just appears in the room in front of everybody. You can imagine all the other disciples. They're diving behind the tables. It's kind of like the Wild West movie when you know, the, gang, the guy comes in, the gunman, and everybody starts diving behind tables because they're thinking, like, okay, Thomas, you're, you're getting it now, buddy. Uh, you, after that statement, I feel sorry for you. And so Jesus does. He lets him touch him and handle him. And... Um, the news of Jesus' resurrection just did not fit the worldview of Thomas. Remember, worldview is the beliefs upon which you build your life. And messiahs don't suffer at the hands of the Romans. Uh, dead men don't come back to life. Even though Thomas had witnessed many miracles of Jesus, he still had doubts. And Jesus didn't condemn him for his doubts. He showed himself to him so that he would in turn believe. 
Jesus, who is truth, tears down the lie, which leads us ultimately into transformation. So our doubts are built on lies that the enemy wants us to believe to keep us from believing in Christ, to keep us from following him where he asks us to go. And so Jesus is always bringing truth, because Jesus is the personification of truth, to stand against the lie that ultimately leads to the transformation of our hearts and our lives. Every doubt comes because you have faith in something else. you got faith in something else. That's why we doubt. Thomas doubts that Jesus could rise because, again, of his worldview. He just didn't believe that people rise from the dead. Now, when people bring objections to us as followers of Christ... It is not our job to argue them into the kingdom of God. That's not our job. It's not our responsibility. I'm simply helping you to share with them what we believe and why we believe it in a helpful manner. The ultimate decision is up to them whether or not they are going to accept truth or not, whether they're going to believe and act upon it or not. That is not your responsibility. I've also discovered that asking good questions helps people begin to sift through the thought processes of their life that begins to expose the lies that they are believing. Now, most of us take the Bible literally, but how do you explain the Bible to the culture in which we live? Because the culture in which the Bible was written is totally different from what we live in here in the here and now. And so we have to break that down and bring them into understanding of that culture. I've been studying the scripture for over 40 years, and there are some very difficult passages. And so what I want to do today is to give you four pillars upon which to build a conversation so that when somebody says you, I don't believe in God because, and I'm going to hit two of those very difficult passages that people bring up a lot as to why they just cannot accept God as being a loving God or a faithful father. Right, so we have to build context, and then we'll, we'll unpack those two verses just to kind of see how, how we can communicate with people about what God says. So, here's number one, is that every verse in the Bible has a context. Every verse in the Bible has a context. The worst thing you can do is to take the Bible out of context And we are all very guilty of that. Both Christians and non-Christians will take something out of the Bible, lift something out of the Bible, and take it out of context, and then try to make a statement around it. Non-Christians do this to try to make us say, well, you know, here's the indictment I have against Christians and God and the Bible, and, and, and here's why. And it's usually something they've lifted way out of context, and they don't really understand what they're saying. And even Christians... Sometimes we want to make God look better. We're kind of like protecting his reputation. Or we want God to agree with us. Or we want to look better. So we take something out of context and try to to build uh, truth on that verse out of context. So let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Let's say that you you get up tomorrow morning and you have something that is absolutely um, important to you. But it's, like, it's just like this thing that you've been trying to do before, but you've failed. Maybe some of you are going to go on a diet, okay? Tomorrow's the day. Uh, you set that as a New Year's resolution. You, you, you failed that a long time ago. So he says, tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to get up. And I'm going to start my diet. And, and I know I can do this. I know it's a, it's a mountain to climb, but I know I can do it. And so you might put on Miley Cyrus's song, you know, the, the Climbing a Mountain. Or, or you might 
quote a verse out of the Bible, right? So what's the most common verse that people quote when they're facing something impossible? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Philippians 4, 13. Does it really mean that you can do all things? See, parents are guilty of this with their children sometimes. We say to our kids, hey, just, just, just you can be anything you want to be in life. Is that true? No. You see, if a child doesn't have a mathematic mind, probably not going to be an astronaut or, or an engineer. If, if someone doesn't have a mind for science and chemistry, probably not going to be a pharmacist or, or perhaps a doctor or whatever. Uh, there are a lot of things that we are limited by what God has given us. Now, we can uh, always be what God has designed us to be. That is true. But to say to a child, you can be anything you want, is really not a true statement. I, I've been quoting Philippians 4, 13 for years, try, out on the golf course trying to shoot below par, and it ain't never happened. It's never happened. Now, is God unfaithful to his word? No. I want you to look at the context. Remember I said every verse has a context. What is the context of that verse? If you read the verses in its con that verse in its context, it's not about eating or golfing. The context is whether or not you have a little or a lot, you can learn how to be content because Jesus is strengthening you. That's the context of the verse. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so people pull things out of context to prove what the Bible says. You know, they, they try to pull out con verses out of context and say, well, see, the Bible, it's, it's sexist, it's racist, it's, it's whatever it is that they, they are railing against it. All right, so that's number one. Number two, the Bible, um, the Bible conversations, or, I'm sorry, the Bible contains uh, various styles of writing. And this is important. Remember, the Bible is written over a 1,500-year span of time by 40 different authors from all walks of life in primarily three different languages and across different continents. And yet it has a, a, a story that is, is collective, and it's one main theme. That's Jesus. But there are different writing styles. For example, there is the narrative writing. Much of the Old Testament is in narrative writing. Narrative writing simply means you are giving an account about what is happening or what has happened. Some people read a narrative writing in the Bible, which is saying this is what happened, and they interpret to mean that this is what the Bible approves. No, 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 no. Stop that. For example, does the Bible approve polygamy? Absolutely not. Did God approve that? No way. But yet, you read stories in the Old Testament about people like David and Solomon and Jacob. And there are a lot of other individuals in the Bible who had more than one wife. I mean, you're a Solomon and like 700 wives, because he's always building allegiances with other nations by marrying their daughters. 300 concubines. That's horrible, right? So you could say, well, look, the Bible says that, you know, that it says it, therefore God must have approved it. No, no, no. It's a narrative. It's just telling you what happened. It's not telling you what God has necessarily approved or disapproved. All right, so keep that in mind. If you read the Bible, you'll find that everyone who was engaged in polygamy had a horrible time at it, and it never worked out well. 
Instead of living happily ever after, it was like a Rocky III movie, man. I mean, Clubber Lane came in there. It was like beating them half to death. Never worked well. It caused all kinds of factions in the family and disruptions and hard feelings and so on and so forth. Um, so you have to keep in mind, is this a narrative? When you take a narrative and try to speak instruction into it, that's not what the Bible is saying. This is one of those things that speaks to the inspiration of the Bible. Have you ever noticed the Scripture never sanitizes its heroes? Like, it never just brings out the good stuff about them, but the bad stuff. Like, you know, Samson, you know, he was a judge for 20 years, and, you know, he, he, he did some wonderful things. But it also tells us he was a womanizer, sleeping with prostitutes, gets hooked up with Delilah, you know, gets the hair cut, and ends up being, you know, his eyes plucked out, and thrown into prison, and, and ends, you know, he, he ends his life prematurely because he wasn't walking in the will and the ways of God. So God wasn't condoning that. He was, he was just saying, no, this is narrative. This is exactly what happened. It, same thing with David and Bathsheba and many, many other writers. Uh, so number two is there is prophetic writing, which is not as easily, easy to understand. You, know, you read in Ezekiel, the wheel spinning in the wheel and, and that whole thing, and try to figure that out, it'll drive you crazy. Uh, but sometimes the prophetic writers would switch from prophetic to narrative back to prophetic. For example, the book of Isaiah. First 20 chapters of Isaiah's writing is prophetic, then he switches to narrative, and then he goes on during uh, the narrative and switches back to prof prophetic again, and that can be a little confusing uh, if, you're, if you're not looking for that. Number three, there's poetic writing. And so wisdom literature is poetic writing. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the book of Job. And so it, it's very emotional writing. It conveys the heart of the author. Like if you're going through a very difficult time, uh, what's one of the things you probably go to? is like the Psalms, right? David, his enemies were always coming at him. You know, his, his people were always trying to take his life. And, and David would start praying. And he said, God, you know, would you just like do an all-out UCF on my enemies and just take them out, wipe them out, and... And then as he goes on in that psalm, he'll say, well, but God, I trust you, and I know you're, you're always going to do the right thing, and I, I want my heart to align with you, and, and I want to glorify you in the end. And so as you're reading those things and you're seeing David struggle, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit uses those verses to bring us in alignment with that because we're going through an emotional struggle. And so you, the, the, that psalm just absolutely speaks to the depth and the core of your being. And so that's, that's kind of a... The poetic, the wisdom literature, and uh, it just deeply speaks to your life. Number four, there is instructive writing. Now, when you get to the New Testament, the gospel and Acts is written primarily in the narrative, revelation in the prophetic, but most of the other writings are instructive writings, telling us how to live as a follower of Jesus in the world in which we find ourselves. Now, the problem comes is when you try to take a historical passage and make them prophetic, or try to take poetic and try to make it instructive, that's when we start pulling things out of context when we're not considering the style of the writing. Number three, never build a doctrine out of one verse. Never build a doctrine out of one verse. There are many religious organizations that say things about the Bible, but their doctrines built upon one or two verses in the Bible. You can't do that. If you have a topic that's tough, you need to look at the, how the, the Bible uses that word all throughout it. 
because it helps to give you the context. It helps you to understand the writing style. It helps you to understand really the theme of that word as it is used throughout the scripture to give you a proper understanding. Now, hang on with me. I'm going somewhere. We're going to get to the difficult passages. We're going to take this and we're going to apply it, okay? It's going to be very helpful. I promise you. So, uh, for example, some people, you know, they do the Russian roulette kind of thing where, you know, all, you know, I need, I need a word from God today. I'll just flop open my Bible. You know, I call the drop and flop method. You point your finger and say, oh, that's my verse for the day. You know, so what if you do that and it says Judas went out and hung himself and you think, well, I don't want to do that. So that can't be instructive. Uh, I'll do, I'll try it again. And you plop and, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. Bad, bad choice, right? So that's not the way we approach scripture. Here's number four, and this is very important. We must interpret the Bible based on the culture in which it is written. We don't interpret the Bible based on our culture, but on the one in which it is written. Because if we impose our Western culture upon Eastern understanding, we will greatly misinterpret what the Bible is saying in many areas, especially in the Old Testament, which is where most of the objections come from when people say, well, I can't believe in God because, because God believes in slavery, because God believes in genocide. I got verses right here in the Old Testament that will prove that to you. And I'm going to take both of those on, okay? So we're going to take what we learn here, setting the context, and look at those subject matters that are thrown up in our face oftentimes, and they've got verses to show you uh, exactly why they believe that. But if they're not looking at it within the cultural context, um, then you, uh, you, you come with a, a very bad interpretation. There is a timeless principle that you want to extract from the passages that you're studying. Right? So our culture is different than the culture in which you know, the Bible, all the events happen, especially in the Old Testament. Remember, it's, it's more narrative about what happened. And so, uh, but you can take an Old Testament passage and you can extract from it the timeless principle that God wants you to understand. So that's what preaching is about, right? I just extract a timeless principle that God wants us to understand from the scripture in the context in which it is written, looking at the writing style, looking at how the word is used throughout the Bible. What is it that the Bible wants us to know so that we can put that into practice in our lives? Otherwise, uh, we, we tend to go to what I call the Yankee Doodle Syndrome. Now, most of you probably remember that little nursery rhyme, Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. I'm sure as a kid you really understood that, right? Like, what the heck is my mom telling me? I don't get this. I don't understand it. Now, if we were to interpret that phrase in our culture, in Western culture, Western mindset, well, let's just break that down. Yankee doodle, or Yankee, that could either mean a person who's from the north, or it might be a baseball player who plays for the Yankees. That's what I'm going with. That's my interpretation. And notice it's this, this baseball player is a part-time artist because he doodles, and uh, he went to town, which means obviously he had to go to New York City. That's where the Yankees play out of. He's riding on a pony, which means he's driving a Ford Mustang, obviously. So he's riding to New York City in this Ford Mustang, and he puts a feather in his cap. Now, that's a cultural phrase that we use sometimes to say you've accomplished something, right? So 
he, he, uh, he's probably got some, maybe a, a World Series ring on. Maybe he's won the Golden Glove Award or, or whatever it is. And it says he takes his accomplishment and he calls it macaroni. Now, why would he call it macaroni? Oh, okay. So when he's thinking about, as he's driving to New York, as he's thinking about his accomplishments, he's thinking, you know what? All that I've accomplished as a player for the Yankees, man, this is greater than my most favorite food, pasta. That's, that's obviously it right there. So if you put it all together, uh, I'm sure this is what it means. A professional baseball player who is a part-time artist, he's driving into New York City in his Ford Mustang, carrying golden trophy and wearing World Series rings uh, and thinking about his accomplishments, and it's better than his favorite food, macaroni. Nailed it. That's what I'm going with. Now, is that an accurate interpretation? Come on, work with me. No. Right. You know, this was written during the Revolutionary War at, back in 1776. And, and uh, by the way, I don't think there were any professional baseball players back then. So if you look at it in its context, if you look at it in its cultural setting, a Yankee was someone who was from a northern colony. Right? A doodle was a German word that referred to someone who was like a foolish, a simpleton. They were from the country, not the cultured city, and so they might not be as well educated. And now, uh, what did he do? This person from this northern colony who's kind of, you know, foolish, simpleton, not well educated. He goes into town, and he's riding on a pony, and then he puts a feather in his cap, and he calls it macaroni. What, what in the world does the macaroni mean? Well, the word macaroni in that time meant stylish. All right, so basically what this is saying is that this guy who lives in a northern colony, he's considered, you know, not a bright individual, not cultured. He's riding into the city, the cultured city, and he doesn't want to appear non-cultured, so he puts a feather in his cap, and he says, look, now I'm GQ. Right, so like I, I'm, I'm all it. I got it together, and so that that would be an interpretation based on the culture. Now that makes a little more sense to us. So this is what the Bible says. Second Timothy chapter two and verse fifteen says, "When you're looking at the Bible, study it diligently, and rightly divide it." That word "divide" means to cut straight. Right? So in an agrarian culture, that means you want to plow your rows straight. You don't like going all over this and crisscrossing. If you're a stonemason, you want to make the cuts straight so that the building you're building is both plumb and square, so it stands stronger. And so we're going to cut two passages, right? We're going to cut through these passages, the two big pushbacks, looking at all this backdrop I've just given you, thoroughly confused you probably, uh, and, and here it is. The Bible, number one, is the Bible does not condone slavery because people have said all the time, well, the reason I can't trust God, I can't believe in God, I can't walk after God, how could a loving God condone slavery? I've got verse and scripture in the Old Testament where God talks about it, and I'm telling you, and, and look, at, you know, look at the Christian history, right? Christians used to own slaves, and... Uh, in fact, that's how our Southern Baptist Convention came about, is that uh, the missionaries began fighting over whether or not they could take their slaves out on the mission field. So there's that blight on Christian history, and so that really is a big pushback for many people. I can't accept the Bible. It's backward. It, it, when it comes to social justice issues, 
like that of slavery. And so what do they do? They use the Yankee Doodle syndrome on the Bible. So let me unpack that for a moment. And you can look this up. You can go, go to any uh, good uh, Bible dictionary and, and, and look these facts up. But um, when the Bible uses the word slavery, it does not have the same meaning or connotation as we think of slavery in American history. Not even close. All right? So uh, when you take culture of American history and impose that upon biblical history, the two cultures are vastly different. We can't look at it based on American history, but on Jewish context, if we're going to pull out a verse and try to say, this is why I don't believe in God. Right? So even, even when Jesus said some things, you have to look at it in the context of their culture. Right? For example, Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Right? That's, not, that's very confusing to us as Westerners. Why in the world would I want to be last? If I want to get ahead, i got to be first, right? So i got to scrape and, and claw my way to the top. Well, the culture in the context of what Jesus is saying is this. Is that he's saying, look, when you serve people, you may think that it's costing you and you're getting behind by serving, but I'm telling you, you don't because God will bless you in such a way that your life will begin to move forward and further ahead because you're putting others before yourself. That's the basis of what he's saying. So when we see slavery in the Bible, we immediately think about forced labor, sex trade, you know, um, trafficking of human beings. Uh, we think about those in, uh, who were you know, gathered up in Africa and who were forced to come to America as slaves and dying on ships and being abused by their owners in all kinds of horrible ways. And what many fail to understand is that slavery in biblical times was very, very different and was practiced in the past few, than what's been practiced in the past few centuries. Slavery in the Bible, especially Old Testament, had to do with economics, not punishment or abuse. People were not enslaved because of their nationality or the color of their skin. Slavery was based on economics. It was a matter of social need. People who sold themselves as a slave is because they had a debt they needed to pay someone, but they had no way to make repayment. So in New Testament times, sometimes doctors, lawyers, or even politicians were slaves in the Roman Empire. So in both in the Old and New Testament, uh, the practice of slavery as we think about it that was practiced in the 18th, 19th centuries, the Bible clearly condemns that. In fact, in Exodus 21, 16, God said that if you go out and force a person into slavery against their will and you get caught, it costs you your life. You can be executed for that. And no way does God condone that kind of slavery. In the culture of Judaism, remember, there's no welfare system there's no government assistance. There's no Chapter 11 bankruptcy that you can file. You're completely dependent upon your family. So let's say I hit hard times. I need to borrow some money. I would come to you as the lender and borrow money. If it came to the point where I couldn't pay you back, then I would, I would offer myself over to you as a slave to you until I paid back what it is I owed. Now, God built in some uh, safety mechanisms here. He said that you, you shall not uh, work as a slave in repaying your debt for more than seven years. So if I lend you money, and it's, 
and I'm lending you more than the seven years worth of wages, and after seven years, I've got to let you go, I have to eat that. All right, I, have to, I have to absorb that. Or I can say, listen, I'm not going to lend you any more than seven years of salary because that's all you can pay me back. And so God was really preserving uh, this. And so uh, after seven years, you were released. Now, sometimes people liked the person they were working for. They liked what they were doing. And so they would stay on for an infinite amount of time, however long it is that they wanted to, to, to stay on. So um, I want you to... Uh, God also set into place some very strict instructions on how a slave was to be treated. For example, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 26 and 27, if the master mistreated the slave um, by hitting him, abusing him or her, they were, the debt was considered automatically canceled. You had to let him go. Otherwise, you suffered repercussions. In Job, we learned that a slave could take their master to court if they were being abused by their master. Deuteronomy 23 says if a slave runs away from his master and another Hebrew finds them, uh, they do not have to take them back because obviously it may have been an abusive case and therefore they would let the courts settle that issue between the slave and the owner. My point is simply this. It doesn't sound much like slavery in America because it was not. You can't imply the Yankee Doo principle upon the Bible because it just doesn't work. Somebody says, well, the Bible doesn't speak against slavery. Why would it? Because it was simply a means of paying off debt. It was never used, meant to be used in an abusive way. When you get to the New Testament, it also talks about slavery. Now, in the Roman Empire, uh, every, uh, in every race, people had slaves and were slaves as a means of paying off debt. Even the Paul in Ephesians says that slaves are being obedient to their masters, right? He says, you're not working for them, you're working as you're working for the Lord. But then he went on to say to the masters, if you misuse, if you mistreat your slaves, just be known that God will treat you as you have treated them. There were rights in that day and time. Uh, for those who were paying off their debts. Now, there were other forms of slavery that were going on that were harsh and abusive, that were used by many different nations, warring nations, who would come into your country and, and conquer it and force people into slavery and, and may abuse them. But the, the Bible, when it speaks of slavery, is never using it in that way. God did not condone that kind of slavery abuse. Now, why is God dropping breadcrumbs throughout the Bible about this? Because uh, when Jesus came into the world, he talked about slavery, especially in Romans 4 through 7. But when it was a different kind of slavery, he says, We were all slaves to sin, and we incurred a debt that we could not pay. So Jesus, to whom we owed the debt, came in our place and offered himself up as a sacrifice so that we might be set free from our debt of sin. That's why when Jesus was in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, as he began his ministry, and he says, this is why I've come into the world. I've come to set the captives free. And when he got to the end of that, and he said, this is the year of Jubilee. It was the year of Jubilee when all slaves were set free, regardless of what they owed or how much more time they needed to serve. And so this is what Jesus is saying to us, is as your Savior and Lord, I have come to set you free from all sin, 
It's the year of jubilee because Christ has taken the penalty of sin upon himself on our behalf and paid the price that we could not pay. Number two, the Bible does not applaud genocide. Again, we don't have time to read a lot of passages because, but you can look in the book of Exodus chapter 21 and give you much of the context of what I shared with you. The Bible does not applaud genocide. Richard Hawkins in his book, God Delusion, says, and who, who was an atheist, he said, the God of the Old Testament is one of the worst characters in all of antiquity because he enjoys destroying and killing entire cultures of people, right? And so people come along and say, well, listen, I read in the Bible where God told the nation of Israel to absolutely destroy the Canaanites. I don't want utterly destroy them, not just destroy, utterly destroy them. Does that mean they're going in there and now they're going to kill every man, woman, and child, all of the animals? That's genocide. I can't accept a God like that. So I want you to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and let's just trace this out for a moment. Let me set the context. Um, the culture in which is being written here, what's, we have to take all of that into consideration and so genocide is another pushback um, that people give. So here's what he says. When the Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy 7, 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, that is the promised land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and Amorites, and Canaanites, and Perizzites, and, uh, I mean, every, every ite that's there, right? So there's seven nations and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Right? So, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. So people look at that and say, mm, no, can't accept a God like that. I mean, you, you can tell me God loves me all I want, but when I see things like that. So let's set a little context here. During football season, when my beloved Dallas Cowboys are playing, people often ask me, well, how, how did the Cowboys do this weekend? And I would have to say, man, they got murdered. I mean, they were destroyed. I mean, we got killed last weekend. Now, am I saying that the Dallas Cowboys were actually physically murdered, destroyed, and killed? Well, obviously not. Maybe they should be, but... That's another story. Just kidding. Don't send me emails. All right, so these are what? These are expressions that we use, right? We, we use expressions in our language to describe something, but it's not literal. It's not like, oh, they literally got murdered and destroyed and killed. Well, you have to keep this in mind when it comes to the Bible because also there are Hebrew words that mean certain things. For example, the word destroy. There are two different Hebrew words that can be used here. And one of the Hebrew words is halay, and it means to literally destroy, to take out, uh, to wipe out. But that's not the word that's used here. There is uh, another Hebrew word, it's charma, and it, it means not to like literally, utterly destroy as far as physical destruction. It is more about, it's not about annihilation, it's about expulsion. In other words, God says, I want you to drive these people out of the land. Right? Remember, God had promised 
Israel, the promised land. And if you look at a, a world map and look at, you know, you've got Iran, Iraq, and Egypt, and you've got Israel. I mean, Israel's like this wee little slit on a world map of all these countries around it. So it was, had a very little uh, section of land. And so they're driving the inhabitants out of that land. God says, I want them out. I want them expelled. I, I want them totally out of here. Do not leave any of them behind. Well, why would he say that? Because this expulsion was needed in order to drive them out because God knew this. If you leave people in the land, you'll start becoming like them. You're going to start intermarrying them. You're going to take on their gods. You're going to take on their habits. You're going to take on their idols because they worship like Baal, you know, and, and who was the god of fertility and, and, and rain. And, and so uh, they did sacrifices to him, the god of Moloch, which if you wanted things from Moloch, you had to sacrifice children. And so child sacrifice was very much a part of their culture. Uh, and you have to also keep in mind, in this day and time, these are warring nations, right? It's like you kill or be killed, right? They're, they're going to overtake you. They're going to take your land, take it, enslave you if you don't fight back. So God is saying, I'm giving you this land. The Canaanites are in that property. But watch this. Before God instructed them to drive them out, God had given the Canaanites 400 years to repent of their ways and to come to him. 400 years. Just like with the Assyrians. Remember when Jonah went into Nineveh, uh, the capital city of Assyria, and, you know, they gave, you know, there was a great revival that took place. Well, later on, the, what did the Assyrians do? They forgot about that and got, got into their warring ways and carried off 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel into captivity. So God is saying, we got we to gotta clear out the land because I know if you don't, man, you're going to start acting like them. So it appears, if you read just this verse, it's bad news. Now I want you to go to the book of Joshua. Remember the book of Joshua? Moses has died. Joshua's the leader. He's going to lead Israel. The unbelieving generation has died out, Joshua 10. And so Joshua's leading them into the promised land. In chapter 10 and verse 40, it says, So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. And we're saying, well, that doesn't look too good, right? That doesn't look very favorable uh, on our part. Now go to chapter 11, verse 15. It says, as the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, Joshua did it, and he left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So God told Moses, Moses told Joshua, he did it, right? And, and you look at that and say, man, that, that is challenging, now go to the book of Judges. Judges, you know, is, is a few years after um, the, the campaign and conquering the, the promised land, which was never totally conquered, by the way. And uh, Joshua has died. And people just start doing kind of what was right in their own eyes. And I want you to look in chapter 1 and verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, of Tanaka and Ador, uh, emblem of Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. Watch, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Now, wait a minute. I thought Joshua wiped them out totally, utterly, destroyed them all, and did everything God told him to do. Now, here the Canaanites show back up. 
nor did, in verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out those living in that area. Neither did Natali, verse 33, drive out those living in that area because they lived among the Canaanites. So they failed to do what? They failed to drive them completely out of the land. God says, I'm not here to, I want you to annihilate the people. I want you to push them out. So either he did get them pushed out, but then some of them let them come back in. Or as the Bible says, they pushed most of them out, but not all of them. And consider that, you know, fulfilling what God had asked them to do. Again, the, the goal was never genocide. It was, the, it was this uh, military strike to drive them out of the land so that the Israelites would not begin taking upon themselves the idolatrous practices of the Canaanites. But when you read chapter 2, that's exactly what they do. Remember when God told Solomon, hey, stop taking all these wives because they'll pull your heart away from me. And Solomon said, God, I got this. I can handle this. And that's exactly what they did. They pulled his heart away from the Lord. This is exactly what the Canaanites did. They started worshiping gods of Baal. They started taking on their idols. They started, you know, engaging in all these horrific practices of the Canaanites. And therefore, uh, God eventually, he, he, he warned them over and over again through the prophets. They failed to listen. So he carries off the northern, you know, Israel into captivity. Judas left behind with two tribes, and they think they're, they're set because at that time they have, they've got the tabernacle and then the temple, and they're like, hey, you know, we got it made. God won't let us be carried out. And then they refuse to listen to the Lord, and the Babylonians eventually take them into captivity. So when people talk about genocide, there are three things I want you to keep in mind. You can't have it both ways, right? First, when people talk about the issues of genocide who don't believe, you know, the Lord, or in, in, you know, just not really to go deeper in the word, it's amazing how people get mad at God because of his lack of intervention, right? For example, well, there was a hurricane, there was a tsunami, there was an act of violence. Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God stop that from happening? Why didn't God put a, you know, keep that from, from going on? And then when, when God does step in and intervene at times, then they're like, well, why is he doing that? Why is he stepping in? Why is he intervening? Here's what's happening. Is it remember that God has raising up a nation through whom Messiah is going to come. He had to protect that nation from being dismantled until Messiah reaches the scene. Right? So God does. He preserves his people to the degree that he needs to preserve them for Jesus to come into the world. And just as sometimes God used Israel to bring discipline upon other nations who had no regard for God, complete disregard, Sometimes God used other nations to bring that same discipline upon Israel. That's why they got carried off in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Because they refused to listen to the Lord. They took on the idols of Canaanites and other countries and refused to bow their, their knee in submission to their, their creator. Number two is God stands against oppression. When the children of Israel oppressed people, that was not... No, God it was never in favor of that. Um, but he, he did not want the Canaanite practices coming into Israel's existence. And so it wasn't God was taking sides, but he was using Israel as an instrument of justice for those who have walked away, and again, vice versa. What God was saying through the Old Testament is this. Idolatry, putting things before me, is a very big deal. 
Now, we live in New Testament era, right? So we're, we're in this age of grace, and we think that idolatry is no big deal to God anymore. Eh, not true. When you replace God and put something first over God in your heart and your life, it's a big deal to him. And sometimes God brings discipline into our lives because he has to root that out of our hearts. Here's the third thing, is that Jesus gives us a fuller picture, right? And so when Jesus came to the world and the idea of Messiah was realized, everyone thought that he was going to be that conquering military king who was going to drive Rome out, you know, expulsion, drive them out of the land so that Israel could be once again a sovereign nation. But what Jesus did was he didn't come back to pay back his enemies. He came to die for his enemies. A whole different way of looking at life. And so Jesus says the same thing to us. We're to pray for our enemies, right? Do good towards them. Help them come to Jesus and faith in him. And so the Hebrew scriptures were crying out for this warrior. And Christ says, I'm not going to overthrow Rome and give you a few years of peace. He says, I'm going to overthrow the real enemy, Satan, sin, and death. That's what I came to do, and that's exactly what you need. Now, I close with this. I don't know. Um, there are passages in the Bible that I still scratch my head and have difficulty figuring out sometimes. But I'm telling you, if you just like dive deeper into God's word, God will begin to clear those things up for you. But here's God's most precedented um, thought process when it comes to our lives is that God, in our day and time, He's about not reforming a culture as much as about reforming our character. Character formation is extremely important to God because until God changes our hearts, and begins to change our, our lie-based thinking to truth thinking. Remember what he said? There's only two ways you can live, either on the basis of the flesh or the basis of the spirit, and the outcome of those two are vastly different. In the 1960s, parents and schools spent a lot of time in the character formation of their students and in their children. Not anymore. Kids are bombarded by things of societal things and what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that. But you, you, can never, you can never change a culture, you can never change a country, you can never change the world until first you begin changing the human heart individually. People will conform to things, but not because they're necessarily into it, it's just that they know that they got stuff on the inside that they don't want to deal with, and therefore they'll jump onto a cause that is like a national cause because then they don't have to deal with their stuff, and it looks good to their neighbors and their coworkers and their family members like, oh, I'm all caught up in this cause, when in fact their hearts are wicked and deceitful above all else. God knows and has conveyed to us you cannot make society better until you make people better and that's where the gospel comes in to play. It has the power to save, forgive, to heal, to heal our soul, to change our lives, to transform our thought processes, and to deliver us from the hands of the evil one who seeks to suppress us and keeping us from living out this freedom that God has given to us. 
When you give people a lot of freedom, if they have no self-control, it's disastrous. What is self-control? A fruit of the Spirit. Truth. Where do you find your truth upon which you build your life? You either find it from the mind of humanity, which is dark, defiled, disillusioned, or deceived. I mean, the lo- deluded with lies. The Bible describes all of this. Or you find it from the mind of God. And when God says it's truth, it's truth for all time, for all people, and all places. Which is why my favorite verse in the Bible is, trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways you acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. When people come with objections, again, you don't argue them into the kingdom. You simply say, here's where I get my truth. Here it is. What do you have to offer that's better than this? Let's put our heads together.